There was an old TV show uh, called uh, Kids Say the Darndest Things, and uh, I've found that kids ask the darndest questions, and uh, I I experienced that uh, quite a bit this week. Um, It started out early in the week, I was washing dishes, and um, the kids were playing this game, I guess it's called Animal Trivia, where you, you describe traits of a certain animal without saying the name, and then the other kids have to try to guess what animal it was, and so... Uh, this animal is the deadliest animal in the world. It kills more people every year than any other. And um, maybe some of you can figure that out. My kids were guessing bears and cheetahs and, you know, whatever. And, and they were off. And, and uh, I was feeling pretty good about myself. I'm a, I'm a dad. I know more than these kids. And so I said, I know what the answer is. And I said, it's a mosquito. And whoever was asking the question was like, yeah, dad knows the answer. And so I felt pretty good about myself. I get to show off. I'm smarter than five and seven and nine-year-olds. And, <laughs> and so then my, my five-year-old kind of ruins my, my, my moment. And he says, okay, well, he says, Dad, why, why did God make mosquitoes? And they, they, they give you itchy bumps. And apparently he finds out that they kill lots of people every year. Why did God make these things? And I was, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really in the, in the zone of, like, theological, like, answers. And so I kind of, it's like, well, you know, they're probably an important part of the ecosystem. I don't know. I'm not a biologist. But that's my guess. You know, they have some important role to serve. And I thought I had kind of, okay, I, I got through that one. And then my next, my, my middle son, seven years old, says, well, God, or Dad, he doesn't think I'm God. He says, Dad... <laughs> Why does, why does God let babies die? Because like, his mind immediately goes to mosquitoes kill people, and he thinks whatever about adults, but babies, that's what really matters to him. Why would God let babies die? Boy, now the question's really getting hard, and I kind of hemmed and hawed, and oh, well, you know, sin cuts us off from God, and I, I didn't give a great answer, because I just, I wasn't like in the zone, right? And so I was like, you know... Let's, you know, you guys need to clean your room. Go, go clean your, go work, you know. And so they, they go clean their room. And so a little later in the evening, I'm, I'm sitting on the couch and I'm just listening to music, got Spotify going. And, and so a song comes up and uh, I, I'm just, in, I'm really into this song. So I'm just listening, I'm sitting on the couch, just really into it. And honestly, I'm you know, fantasizing that I'm playing the song up there. And, and I, I do that sometimes. And uh, then my oldest son comes running over and he breaks, breaks into my fantasy world. And he says, Dad, Dad, Dad. And it's like there's an emergency. And I said, okay, what, what, what? He says, Dad, why did God create Satan? So like, so you see my, my, my youngest son, the first question in his mind, why would God create mosquitoes? My next oldest son, well, why would God allow babies to die? And then my oldest, he, oldest son, he just goes right to the very top. Like, let's just go to the very beginning. Why the heck did God create Satan? Like, that would just take care of all the rest. Oh, boy. I said, well, you know, I, I'm listening to my song. You go say, <laughs> I, I, I'm not ready to answer this question right now. I'm, I'm listening to my favorite song. And these are tough questions. Tough questions for adults, and they continue for adults. Uh, and often we don't have specific answers for specific questions. Uh, I don't know why God lets babies die specifically. I don't know why my w- wife had a miscarriage years ago. Uh, I couldn't tell you exactly the specific reason why God allowed that to happen. I don't know why God allowed my grandfather to develop Alzheimer's. 
and to take five years of just progressively going downhill before he finally passed away. I, I can't find a Bible verse that says Orville Schrock will get Alzheimer's because, or God will allow him to have Alzheimer's because. I, there's no place in the Bible that says anything like that. It doesn't give us specific answers to those kind of questions. But the Bible does give us general, a general answer. Maybe we don't like general answers, but it does give us one. In the top of your worship folder, I have a verse from Colossians. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. It says, for by him, by Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This says that anything that exists was created by God or was allowed by God to happen. It is all from, ultimately exists by Christ's power, by His power, by His plan, by His will, and for Christ, for His glory. And Paul would add to that in Romans, for the glory of God and for the good of His people, the ultimate good of His people. And so I may not know specifically why God created mosquitoes, but Scripture tells me that God created the world, everything in it, to display His glory. Through creation of the natural universe, through His his hatred and judgment of evil and His mercy and compassion for sinners and His ability to take the worst evil that Satan and humans can commit and to then turn that around for good through His salvation of people who will someday see His glory and enjoy Him forever. And supremely through the incarnation, the sacrificial death, the resurrection, and the exaltation of His Son. That is the purpose for which God created the world and allows everything to happen which happens. And that then gives me a general answer for these other questions. Somehow, mosquitoes show God's power and His wisdom in creating the natural world. But people get sick and babies die because of human sinfulness. Ever since humanity rebelled and rejected God, we have been separated from His life-giving spirits. And therefore, we are now susceptible to sickness, suffering, and death. But in His mercy, God created a way for us to be reconciled to Him. Through faith, we become united to Christ. Not just uh, like an inner idea, but genuinely to use a philosophical word, ontologically connected to Christ. There's a real connection. His Spirit is really in us. And therefore, His death is able to cover and to pay for our sins, to serve as the punishment for our sins. And His perfect righteousness is able to be counted, credited to us. And now we have a measure of God's Spirit in us, but that will someday be full and complete forever. And there will be no more suffering and death. And in the meantime, God continues to show His power and His wisdom by using weak, sinful, finite, flawed little humans to overcome the plans of Satan. 
which is why God would create a powerful angel who he knew would rebel and lead other angels in rebellion against him. And I say this not just to show how an understanding of redemption history can answer our hard questions about God, but also because we cannot appreciate the greatness of Christmas and the incarnation without seeing the big picture of what God is doing in the world. The incarnation is the apex, the climax of God's plan. Everything that happened before the incarnation was leading up to it, and everything that happens afterward is a result of it. Jesus' coming is a huge deal. It's the biggest event in human history. And we're going to see that in our passage today. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. We've been doing a Christmas series, and uh, Thomas and Garrett got us, got us going, and they've led up to my verse today. And, and really, today, we are at the, we're at the top. We're at the very edge of this whole incarnation story. Um, I would compare it to a roller coaster. I, I grew up loving roller coasters, and uh, I, in the Midwest, there's this theme park called Cedar Point. I don't know if anybody here has ever been there. Uh, it has some of the largest roller coasters in the world. And when I was growing up, the largest roller coaster was called Millennium Force. And it was at Cedar Point. It was 300, it's a 300 foot drop, uh, 45 degree angle. And it was a traditional roller coaster. I'm not into the 3D weird stuff, but I like the, the old school traditional where it takes you up. You go, you start out with this huge hill and you're just going up. And it seems like you're going up forever. And finally you get to the edge and you kind of, you know, right before you go over the top, you're kind of like right there and you're looking and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. But it's all, oh, it feels good somehow in a scary way. And then it, then it just drops you. And we're kind of there. Uh, same uh, for me, I love uh, Universal Studios. I love the Jurassic Park ride. Same thing. You're kind of going over the edge of the waterfall and you're like, oh but it feels cool. And we're kind of there in our story. Now, technically, the incarnation has already happened because Mary is pregnant, but really it's, it's the birth of Jesus that really kind of gets the whole story like just roaring ahead. And we, we look at Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. But this story today, with the birth of John the Baptist and the, and the prophecy of his dad, is kind of that edge of the waterfall. We're just tipping over and we're almost to Jesus' birth and we're kind of looking ahead at what's going to happen. So let's take a look. Verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's amazement, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. 
to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Now in Israel at this time, the birth of a boy was a huge deal. And I'm sorry, girls, it wasn't quite a big deal for girls. Girls were loved too, but boys carried on the family line. And so it's a big deal, and especially a firstborn son. That first son kind of let you say, oh, goodness, thank goodness, our, our line, our lineage, our family name will continue. And in this case, it's even, even more important because not only is this their firstborn son, it's really going to be their only child. They, this is an older couple. They've been barren. They have no children. And so miraculously, they conceive, and now they're able to have a child. And so this, everybody realizes this is it. This is their only child that they're going to have. It's a boy. It's a big deal. And so in this culture, uh, for eight days, from the birth of the child all the way up to the eighth day when they would circumcise the child, all the neighbors and friends and families would gather every night at the, at, at the house and they would party and celebrate. I don't know how the mothers enjoy that. I think they'd be like, well, I'm tired and trying to recover. But the dads are having a blast. And so they're out there and they would hire musicians. And so they'd be playing music and partying and drinking and just having a blast. It's awesome. And, uh, and again, even they're really excited because this is Zachariah and Elizabeth and they're old. And so finally the eighth day comes and it's time to circumcise the child and name him. And so they say to Elizabeth, all right, I guess you're going to name him Zechariah because the tradition was you named him after the dad or the grandpa. That was common. Sometimes maybe an uncle if somebody in the family was really famous, but generally the dad or the grandpa. And so they say, okay, right, it's going to be Zechariah. And Elizabeth says an emphatic no. In fact, in the Greek, probably better translation would be absolutely not. No way. Not a chance. His name is John. And we know from verse 20 that that's what the angel had told them to name the baby. And John is a cool name. I think in English it's so, so common we don't think about it. But in Hebrew, the word John, it means the Lord is gracious or the Lord's grace. The Lord has been very gracious to Zechariah and Elizabeth by giving them this, this child in their old age. Not just any child, but this great prophet. And the Lord has been gracious to his people by sending someone who will prepare them for Jesus. Because of John, people knew that the Messiah was almost there. John said, hey, he's coming. He's, he's going to be here real soon. Get ready. And so people knew the Messiah was coming. And because of John, they knew that the Messiah expected them to, have, to, to, be, to be changed on the inside. The Messiah wasn't just a political Messiah. He was a Messiah who wanted repentance. He wanted new hearts. He was going to fill them with the Holy Spirit. John is the one who told people this. And if you look in Scripture... At least some of Jesus' disciples are followers of John, and probably, probably many of Jesus' disciples had exposure to John, and probably many of Jesus' broader crowd of followers were exposed to John. And so John prepared people for Jesus. 
The people at this party, they're not thinking that way. They're, they're just saying, well, maybe Elizabeth is, is kind of being disrespectful, right? She's like, man, I don't like my husband's name. You know? So they think, oh, maybe she's kind of overstepping her bounds as a woman. Like the dad is the one who names boys. So they, they signal to Zechariah and they're like, you know, trying to get him to say, well, what do you name, what do you want to name this child? Which shows that he is deaf. He, not only can he not speak, he cannot hear. And actually the, in verse 20, where the angel tells him, you, because you didn't believe my word, you're going, to be, you're going to be silenced. The Greek word there, it means both deaf and mute. So he can't make sense. He can't speak if he can't hear. And so he can't hear, and so they bring him this tablet, which would be a very thin board, kind of like plywood, and it was covered with wax, and you would get it like a sharp object, and you could write on it. And it wasn't real convenient. It's, you know, you can't write a lot. Um, so he gets this, this board, and he writes on it, his name is John. And when that happens, at that moment, uh, everybody is shocked that he would, that he would say this, and, and his mouth is open, and he begins to praise God. And Luke says that he begins to prophesy. He sings a song that is a message from God, from the Holy Spirit that is upon him. He actually prophesies and gives a direct message from God. He says that God has come to rescue his people by sending a Savior. And it's really interesting as you read this song, there's three covenants that this Savior is going to fulfill from the Old Testament. Now, covenants is kind of an old school word, so don't, I don't want to lose you here. Covenant, it's just, it's a, just, it's an agreement between two parties, two, two people or two groups, that both groups promise to, to keep up their end of the agreement. And so marriage is a covenant where both two, two people say, I'm going to, I'm going to stay faithful to you. I'm going to love you forever. I'm never going to leave you. That's a, that's a covenant of marriage. And so God made lots of covenants with his people. And he made three specific covenants about salvation in the Old Testament. And we know from the Old Testament that God's people were constantly not keeping their promise to to hold to the covenant, but God is unconditionally committed to his covenants and he constantly kept them. And so the first covenant that Zechariah mentions is a promise that God made to David and that, that, that God explained throughout the prophets that one of David's descendants will be a king over God's people. And Zechariah mentions this in verse 69. He's raised up a horn of his salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago, this king will be king over God's people. He will rule forever. He will rule over the entire earth. Isaiah says he will be called mighty God, prince of peace. Under his rule there will be everlasting peace and prosperity. Everyone will worship God under the rule of this great king. Even the natural world will be transformed and made new by God's presence when this Messiah comes. Eden will be restored. No more suffering, no more death, no more evil. That's the first covenant that Zechariah mentions. The second one that he mentions in verse 73 is a promise that God made to Abraham. 73, he says, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and enable him to, us to serve him without fear. God promised Abraham to give him a homeland, to give him the land of Canaan as his land and to make his family a great nation. His offspring would be more than the stars in the sky, more than could be counted. And that through his family, he would bless all nations of the earth. Now, if you were to ask a first century Jew at this time if God had fulfilled his covenant to Abraham, that Jew would say, not completely. Yes, we have the land of Canaan, 
And yes, we, there are lots of us. We, we are, we've multiplied greatly, but we're not a great nation. We're still oppressed by foreigners, by our enemies. But the Messiah's coming, and He's going to deliver us. To de- he's going to defeat our enemies. He'll defeat them. He's going to crush them. And then after He crushes them, then He'll bless them. Then the King will come, and He'll force them to worship God, and He'll force them to live at peace. And so that's probably what Zechariah has in mind here. But then he mentions a third covenant starting in verse 75. He says, In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my son, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him and to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. If you skim over the Old Testament, you will see that the Israelites are constantly wandering away from God. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure that one out. Uh, God delivers his people from Egypt, brings them out of Egypt, and gives them his law and says, this is, what I, you know, this is my uh, covenant with you. And then a couple weeks later, they're worshiping an idol. And then they would beg God to save them from their enemies. He would, and then they'd go back to worshiping idols. And even the heroes of the Old Testament are constantly messing up. God makes that covenant with Abraham this incredible covenant, and he says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan that you're in right now, and you're, you and Sarah, you're going to have all these kids, and they're going to fill the, fill the whole land. And then right after that, what does Abraham do? He goes to Egypt, he moves away to Egypt, and he gives his wife away to Pharaoh to try to spare his own life. He's like, oh, I don't know, she's my sister, yeah, marry her, please. And God like, has to intervene and, and bring them back together and take them back to Canaan, but Abraham <laughs> has pretty weak faith in that story. God makes a covenant with David. Yeah, you're gonna have to, you're, I'm going to establish your lineage. I'm going to make you a great dynasty. You're going to have descendants who rule forever. And David's like, great, thank you, God. And then he goes and has an affair and then tries to kill the, does kill the husband of the woman and, and, and tries to cover it all up. And it's just like, you just want to like smack yourself sometimes. You're reading these stories. And so through the prophets, David, or not David, God tells his people that they don't just need to be rescued from their enemies, need to be rescued from themselves. And God promises that someday He will make a new covenant with them. Not like the old covenant, uh, not like the law with Moses, because their hearts are hard. And no amount of external laws and promises and threats could get them to change. They needed a heart transplant, new desires, new attitudes. They need God to put His law inside of them, to make it internal, not external. To make them want to obey Him. And God had promised that this would happen when the Messiah came. Through the Messiah, God says, in an Old Testament book called Zechariah, God says that in one day I'm going to deal with the sins of my people. And one day I'm going to wipe them out once and for all. And he said he would fill his people with his spirit. That they would know him directly and want to obey him. And that's what Zechariah is talking about in these verses. That's what's going on here. Through John the Baptist, God would soften people's hearts. And begin that new covenant process of changing their hearts and drawing them back to Him. Now, how does all this relate to Christmas? It's kind of an interesting, maybe a historical Old Testament kind of overview. How does it relate to Christmas? Christmas is a time to think big picture about God's purposes in the world by remembering the three covenants that we just looked at and how Jesus fulfills them. The first is God's covenant with David, and that points to the return of Jesus, that someday Jesus will return. 
and he's going to rule over the earth, and it will happen, and he's going to change the earth, and, and so and it's going to be a time of peace and prosperity and no suffering and no evil. And so one thing I talked about last year, and, and I want to encourage you to do it again this year, is to allow yourself to feel the post-Christmas letdown. Allow yourself to feel that. I think uh, for me, it tends to happen either the night of Christmas Day or maybe the next day, uh, where you just kind of feel like, oh, is that it? Like, oh, I got together with family, had a great meal, had presents. I've been, you know, excited for my kids to open their gifts. And, and then it's kind of like, oh, is that, is that all? And I just kind of want something more. It's like I, I, I kind of build it up and then it didn't quite live up to expectations. And so I think we try to skip over that somehow and say, well, okay, well, I'm looking to, for New Year's. Or I'm, I'm looking for whatever, whatever the next big thing is, the Super Bowl. Like I'm just going to keep being excited about something else. But I think there's a, a purpose and a place for kind of setting back and saying, you know what? Yeah, Christmas didn't deliver. There's nothing in this life that will deliver completely, fully, forever. And so Christmas then becomes a pointer to eternal joy, to the true Christmas that will come when Christ returns. And then God's covenant with Abraham points to the Great Commission, that through Abraham's descendants, all people on earth will be blessed. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, you have been, Paul says, you have been adopted into Abraham's family. You are not a Jew ethnically, but you are a Jew spiritually. You've been adopted into Abraham's family. And now we have a chance to bless those who don't know God. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, we get into this mindset where it's like, kind of like the, the first century Jews when Jesus came, where it's like, we want God to like judge our enemies and destroy our enemies, and then maybe he'll bless them later. But God came and he said, no, I'm sending Jesus first to offer blessings. There will come a judgment someday, but first blessings, an offer of blessing, an offer of peace. And so may that be our mindset. You know, there's always people, especially at Christmas, who just want to want to rip on Christians and want to rip on Christmas and, and be cynical or whatever. But this is an opportunity not to fight back and get angry and cynical. This is an opportunity to offer blessings and to at the very minimum to pray for them and say, God, soften their hearts. Soften their hearts. Bless them, God. As you're with family members, maybe, who are irritating and cynical, and, and maybe they're unbelievers, and, and it's just a chance to think, okay, God, I don't want to be judgmental, and I won't, don't want to be angry. I want to I love and offer blessings and offer the love of Christ. And then third, God's new covenant points toward the forgiveness of sins through Jesus and being filled with God's Spirit. We should be thankful this season for salvation. If you don't yet, if you have not yet trusted in Christ, this is a great time to do it. Man, Jesus came to save you, to, to die in your place, and to now offer you new life, eternal hope, eternal joy, eternal new power inside of you. And so this is a great time to just put your faith, to just trust Jesus. Say, Jesus, I trust you. I receive it. I don't understand everything, but I receive it. I don't know why you made mosquitoes completely, but I get it. I, I, I trust you, Jesus. But it's also a time, if you are a believer, to not be complacent. Paul says, yes, we're filled with the Spirit, but Paul says, be filled with the Spirit daily. And Paul talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. And so there's definitely, I, I hate to use this kind of language, but there's kind of different levels. And we can settle for less than God wants us to experience of His Spirit in our lives. And we can say, yeah, I got the Spirit, I'm cool, I'm, I'm Christian, I'm going to heaven. God wants more for you than that. That every day you'd say, Holy Spirit, fill me. I want to walk with you. I want to walk more closely with Jesus today than I did yesterday. 
May that be our goal this year, that we would say, you know what, of all the resolutions and things and whatever else, my desire this year is to walk more closely with Jesus and have a greater sense of his presence than ever before. May that be our New Year's resolution and our Christmas hope. Let's pray.